0: Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode.
2: New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hi, this is Steve.
0: Some directors have an absolutely recognizable style whether it's the framing and lens choices of Stanley Kubrick or the Coen brothers, the rhythm and language of a film by Quentin Tarantino, or the kind of suspense that only Alfred Hitchcock can deliver. My guess is if you were dropped into a movie theater with one of their films playing, it wouldn't take you long to name the director. Now, Paul Thomas Anderson has covered subjects as diverse as high fashion pornography, religious cults, and unlikely romances, but the style of his movies remain uniquely and recognizably his own. Anderson has a clarity of vision that is unlike any other filmmaker working today. There's a palpable tension in sound design and music, a way the camera moves that is extremely specific and yet beautifully alive. Performances are unusual, thrilling, dramatic, and yet undeniably human, and all of that supporting stories which are immune to Hollywood tropes, cookie-cutter structures, or predictable endings. Paul Thomas Anderson movies are simply paul thomas anderson movies and perhaps no film highlights that style in sharper relief than his 2007 masterpiece there will be blood starring paul dano and the incredible daniel day lewis this is without question an amazing film and we couldn't have asked for a better guest than emmy award-winning sound editor john grieber John has worked at arguably the greatest sound facility in the world, Skywalker Sound, for over 20 years. And his credits include everything from Saving Private Ryan and the Star Wars prequels, when he was just starting out, to being the supervising sound editor on Paul McCartney 321, Come From Away, and the Bee Gees' How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, for which he won an Emmy. There Will Be Blood is one of John's favorite films, so if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend a trip to our website, cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream There Will Be Blood along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles right now, you could be listening to a discussion of the rise, fall and resurrection of Brendan Fraser's career and his claims of being blacklisted after being sexually assaulted by a powerful Hollywood executive. So that's Brendan Fraser on Patreon, and There Will Be Blood, part one, with special guest John Grieber, this Friday on The Cinephiles.
3: What would you like, Eli? $10,000. For what? For my church.
0: Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris, I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California.
1: Hey everyone, my name is John Roke I'm a writer, producer, and host there on the Outlaw Nation channel, also a voiceover guy here in the lovely California and I'm a big fan of this movie, and I'm looking forward to drinking milkshakes with our guests. Um, I think we're all going to be doing
0: that voice a bit as we go <laughs> along. Um, I'm a big fan of this movie, too. The movie is not, in fact, Chinatown, even though that voice sounds a lot like John Huston. <laughs> yes. The movie is There Will Be Blood, and I am so, so excited to welcome John Greber to our show. Now, I've known John since we figured out since junior high school. But that is, in fact, not the reason that we wanted to have him on the show. John has been working at arguably the greatest sound house at the world, Skywalker Sound, Whew. for over 20 years. And when I talk about the list of movies, I went on his IMDb page. The list of movies John has worked on is literally, I don't know if it's 200 movies, 300. I mean, it's so long. I'm and this old. goes it goes back to the you know mid-90s with movies mm-hmm. like Saving Private Ryan and Toy Story 2 and Galaxy Quest and the Star Wars prequels and and wow. all sorts of movies as he moved his way up through the ranks, starting doing transfers, and now he's a supervising sound editor. Some of his most recent work is the Paul McCartney 321 that just came out. Oh, that was great. Um, Come From Away, which I haven't watched yet, oh. but I saw the stage show and I can't wait to watch the musical. There's yeah. the Diana film that's coming out. And... John, you just won an Emmy for the Bee Gees documentary. Congratulations. That that is an amazing documentary, and obviously sound is a huge part of it. So, John Grieber, welcome to the
4: Cinephiles. Thank you, guys. It's an honor to be here, and uh, thank you for the very warm introduction. And, yeah, you know, I I will say uh, super weird and shocking about the Emmy, um, but (laughs) it is a wonderful movie, and I think – when someone like Frank Marshall, who's been producing movies for, I don't know, 50 years, yeah. directs something, it's like, you you watch this movie, and you're like, yeah, this is like emotionally resonating and interesting, and I knew nothing about that band the Bee Gees, nothing except for wow. the saturday night fever thing so kind of fell in love with it so it's a real it's a really special that that's the thing that gets the award but um anyway thank you and i'm, I'm really looking forward to today because i think i have a lot to say about this
0: movie. <laughs> i have no doubts that you have a lot to say and um and
1: can, okay oh, can, can somewhere quick yeah. First of all, I want to say I've seen the documentary four times because the oh, Bee Gees wow. are one of my favorite groups. And so, wow. like, I didn't think anything would cross my love of the Eagles documentary. Or oh, my God. come close. I, right? I love
4: that one. I love that one. That
1: one is fantastic. Three yeah. hours of genius. And then I watched this Bee Gees documentary, and it was just incredible. So I just want to give you I, a whole I, I appreciate Actually, love. I
4: worked with Allison, the woman, the director who oh. did the Eagles doc. She yeah, the Laurel Canyon dock that oh, we did right. a couple years ago, which is yes. equally as sprawling. But this the Bee Gees movie, there's something a little, I don't know, there's something so damn charming and sad yeah. and uplifting and a bummer, everything, you know. So I'm glad you really liked it. And, you know, the one sign I think you guys will relate to is that when you're working on a movie and the crew, the grizzled crew, especially the grizzled post crew, when they yeah. like it, it's a yeah. really good indicator that it's good wow. because generally they're like, yeah, this sucks or, well, you know, you're just kind of over it by the 10,000th time yeah. that you're, you know, so that was, everyone was gushing on this from the producer to this person wow. to, and it just rubbed off on that, all of us, so.
1: One more question. Can you tell the fans a little bit about what you do, your yeah. job? You say supervising sound editor. What does that mean? Sure, What, what, are, yeah. you, what are you, what are you re- responsible for?
4: My family still doesn't understand. I, I swear to God, <laughs> this Sunday, I saw my family. My brother, I think, referred to me as a sound engineer, which is it's what I did 25 years ago. But, <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, okay, so basically. Sound editing on a movie or really a TV show, it's kind of like they filmed the movie. You know, Obviously, you guys know all this, but explain mm-hmm. to the audience. They have filmed the movie. The picture editor is cutting the movie. They're working away. They're getting where they want to go. And eventually, they're going to turn it all over to us. And what we get is their, all the sound they've been using, which is all the sound they've recorded, all the sound they've put in, all this stuff. So then what we do in departments is we all have sort of different jobs. There's the effects editors, which includes Foley, um, and they're usually on a narrative film. They're coming up with everything almost from scratch. You know, all the cool effects, but all the doors, all the Mm -hmm. air, all the vehicles. Then you have uh, music editorial, which we don't really do a ton of. Usually they're working with the composer and they're getting that all set, and then we don't even see them until we hit the mix stage. What I generally do is dialogue editorial. So if it's an animated Mm -hmm. movie, it's all stuff recorded in a booth, John, as you know, and you do, Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, it's a hell of a lot easier than a narrative film. If it's a narrative film, it's all the production audio they shot on set, which has all of the challenges that you get from that. All of the airplanes overhead or the the muffled mics or the Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And you my job as a dialogue editor there really is make it sound good. I mean, you know, Make no one notice your work. Mm-hmm. Fix things as you can. Or in the case of a documentary like the Bee Gees or Laurel Canyon or any of those, you're dealing with old archival interviews. You're dealing with new interviews. You're dealing with old archival uh, performances and stuff. So you're, you're having to do a lot of sprucing up, making someone's voice sound more like their voice 30 years wow. ago or vice versa. And then the worst is the... The bane of my job, the, you know, the Franken sentences. So the picture editor has someone and they really want them to say, that's when I knew that we had a great sound. And really, they never said that. They said, that's how I knew I had to go to sleep. And and then they were talking about someone else. Oh, they had a really great sound. So they cut these. That's when I knew I had a really great stuff. They do stuff like that. And I have to then work on the cadence and the volume and the EQ and just make it play a little bit better. Very often I'll say, I'm looking for of, I'm looking for this person saying of, because if they don't say (laughs) of here, it doesn't make sense. So I'll sit through an hour and a half interview with them and just listen for hearing of, and I'll just copy that one and copy this one. Can I make this work? So that's the dialogue. Can can
0: I interrupt for just a sec? So first of all, I do that all the time editing the cinephiles. There is, Mm -hmm. there is tons of little Frankenstein sentences, particularly in documentaries. I've done it um, because, because you have someone in a documentary in an interview and they give a rambling answer with like four great points. And then you're trying to put it. And I've done the same damn thing Mm -hmm. of like, I need an and, and then I'll find an and, but the and is at a higher vocal intensity. And so it won't fit in with the, or the, you know, or trying to adjust the cadence or, or even a messed up breath that's at the wrong place, yeah. it's just yeah. so... Yeah, the, the,
4: the, what you say is the worst. Like when they're talking this way, like, I, it was really great. And then on this here, they're like, well, you know, I thought it was really great. And you cannot mix those. Nope. They just mm-hmm. will not work. But that's my job, you know. And so yeah. I figure it out and make it work. Well, that's great. But as a supervising sound editor, you know, I'm also in charge of Everything else, you know, dealing with the producers, dealing with the director, making sure that they are happy and that the story is served by the sound by the time they leave the building or I leave their building, yeah. whatever. It's all about the sound serving the story and making them happy and hopefully they want to come back. So that's, that's, that's my job and I love it. I really do.
1: I think all of us who do videos on YouTube are very, very, very like small percentages – do what you do. Like we have to edit our own sound yeah. our own dialogue or like I, I'll record a 20 minute review and have to cut it down to eight minutes and have to cut pieces of sentences yeah. out of myself to try to make it. So, uh, I get a, I have a very, very small understanding of what you do. Know, yeah. I can't even imagine at the levels. And, yeah. and Steve as well, what he has to do with re-listening to our entire episodes and yeah. editing and stuff. So it can be overwhelming. Much love to both of you. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's I, exhausting I, and annoying as hell. Yeah. I, I just can't imagine having, because I've
0: done everything on shoestring budgets and little independent things, where it was just me as the editor and... One sound guy doing the mix, and like oh, the yeah. idea of like, wait, there's an effects department. Oh my like, <laughs> dialogue
4: editors. And that sounds amazing. But be real about it; it's really expensive. I mean, if you're dealing oh, yeah. with a union situation, yeah. which there's a lot of union stuff going on right now, oh, that's sure. my union. Um, you there's just certain pricings that you can't get around. So a lot of these indie directors, that I have a lot of really great friend directors. They're like, well, we got, you know, I think we can get ten grand for the sound, and I think. Yeah. 10, 15, 20 years ago, you could make that work somehow. But now it's like, I mean they're all like going to Canada To get these Anyway that's a problem for a different day
0: So uh, the movie we're talking about Is There Will Be Blood And one of the reasons we're talking about it Is that I know John it's one of your favorite movies Mm -hmm. Um, Both Johns it's one of your Mm -hmm. favorite movies Um, It's also a Patreon pick So Evan Zoller Stanley Daniel and Stephen Cree Or Cree I'm not sure how to pronounce your last name But all of you picked There Will Be Blood And we would love to hear Why you
4: picked this film Hi, John and Steve. This is Stan Daniel from Louisville, Kentucky. I am so excited to hear the cinephiles break down Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. I've loved this film from the time I saw it in the theaters, and in the years since, it's become one of my favorite, if not my most favorite film of all time. I love everything about this movie, from the amazing cinematography, direction, the iconic performances, and the haunting and minimalistic score by Johnny Greenwood. I think it really says something about a movie that's almost three hours long, that each time I finish it, I immediately want to rewatch it. Thank you so much for choosing this incredible film.
1: Some strong words there. I like the kind of passion they have for this movie. You love that. Well, this movie elicits a lot of passion. Mm. Um, I
0: want to give some pre-production, but I have to give a, an extra credit here first. So <laughs> normally one of my main sources for, pre, for for finding out the information about a movie is mm. on the Blu-ray or the DVD. And on a great film like this, there's always a commentary track and a behind-the-scenes thing and another sure. documentary and a story. Historic- there's like nothing on this Blu-ray. It's PTA doesn't like to do commentary tracks. So I was like really at a loss. And so I'm scouring the internet and I found a YouTube guy named Cinema Tyler who does his own. It's like the cinephiles. He does his mm-hmm. own sort of big behind the scenes videos. They're really good. And so thank you, Cinema Tyler, for being my source. Oh, that's awesome. I, um, you, everyone should check him out. And everyone who's a fan of Cinema Tyler should be a subscriber to the cinephiles. There you I go. I think. So this movie has a very very strange origin story, which is that uh, Eric Schlosser, who's a journalist who wrote Fast Food Nation and was involved mm. in the in the documentary Fast Food Nation. People kept coming up to him and saying, well, you must have read lots of Upton Sinclair because Fast Food Nation is a sort of expose of an industry. And Upton Sinclair had written, of course, The Jungle, which is one of the greatest exposes of all time. And Schlosser went, yeah, I read The Jungle a long time ago. I haven't read anything else. And so he started reading other Upton Sinclair books and came across this book, Oil. And he was, this should make a movie. And so he bought the rights. Didn't have a director. Didn't have anything. The guy's a journalist, but just went. Uh, You know, he went to the Sinclair family and bought the rights. Um, And he's looking around for a director. And then he gets a call from Paul Thomas Anderson, who found out he had the rights. Because what had happened, PTAs in London, he's working on a screenplay about some feuding families. It's not really working. It's not going anywhere. And he's homesick. And he's wandering through a bookstore. He's from California. And he sees the cover of a book with a picture of an oil rig in a California background. And he's like man, I want to read something about California. And that book is oil. And he got a couple of hundred pages in and went, this would make a great movie (laughs) and found out the rights had already been purchased. And he uh, reached out to Schlosser who obviously went, um, Paul Thomas Anderson is interested in that. Like, <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, isn't that amazing? Uh, and so he starts writing. He does tons of research. It's all you know. It's an oil story that takes place in California. So he's going all over Bakersfield, studying the areas, going to the museums, and basically what he says is he. Change the name to there will be blood a because it's a really great name it is. <laughs> and b because he it's really not an adaptation of the book there are a lot of elements of the books so he only used the first like couple hundred pages and I didn't even know it was based on an Upton Sinclair book until two days ago where I bought it on audible and I listened to the first third of the book and it's oh. there are things that are in it like nice. and I'll point out some of them but the whole tone and story is completely, it's yeah. completely different. Um, have, uh, John, have you read the book? No, yeah.
4: no, it's oh. been on my list for hmm, 20, no, no, sorry, 13 years now. Whenever <laughs> we started, uh, cause I did know that it was quote unquote based on oil. But like you say, from everything I hear, it's very, very loose.
0: Yeah. He started writing. What he also found out is that the book oil is loosely based on the life of Edward Doheny, uh, which of course Doheny is a well-known name in Southern California. And so he started doing research into him as well. There are two movies that are big inspirations for this, two of uh, PTA's favorite films. First is Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Mm. which is one we've talked about doing on the Cinephiles forever and a movie I adore. There was a rumor that Paul Thomas Anderson would go home every night of shooting and rewatch Treasure of the Sierra Madre. That is not true. That can't be true. <laughs> and, and anyone who has worked on a movie know the the director does not have two free hours every day <laughs> to launch a movie. That's not realistic. And Maybe the,
1: it's on in the background.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the other movie uh, that was really an inspiration is another of his favorites. And John Rocha, hmm. this is one of your favorite movies. And it is about oil. Can you guess what it might be? Mm, giant Giant is one of PTA's favorite films, which we have done on the cinephiles. Yes, we have. Yeah. He had Daniel Day-Lewis in mind from the beginning. Wow. And he was scared to reach out to him because he was intimidated, which I would be intimidated too. (laughs) Then he found out that Daniel Day-Lewis was a huge fan of another film we've done on the cinephiles, which is Punch Drunk Love. Mm. And that gave him the confidence. It sounds like these guys are just a match made in heaven. He sent him a a first draft of the script and they would call each other and he would send uh, Daniel Day-Lewis materials or videos or audio files of people speaking, sent him treasure of the Sierra Madre and Daniel Day-Lewis in his amazing way is exploring the character over a couple of years. It sounds like, Mm -hmm. and the thing he said, I, I kind of have a different understanding from learning about this film about what his approach is. Like everyone talks about his approach of being like, you know, he goes into prison or he does the, you know, he goes and lives the life. Mm -hmm. What he says is that he loves to look at the world from different perspectives. It's about imagining, you know, more than it's about the physical reality of going to do the thing. Mm -hmm. This movie was hard to raise money for.
1: I I can't imagine why a three hour film about oil. Come on. (laughs) It seems to, you know,
0: <laughs> I love that the studio said they didn't think it had the scope of a major motion picture. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of um, took but, two years to raise money.
1: I do want to go back to something you said here, real yeah. quick, Stephen. That is, uh, this is such an interesting moment, and you say to yourselves, "Well, how can Paul Tos- Thomas Anderson be intimidated by Daniel Day Lewis?" Well. We're seeing Paul Thomas Anderson now, right? We're not seeing Paul Thomas Anderson in the mid 2000s, right? When he'd done essentially ensemble pieces or smaller independent films like Hard Eight. And yes, Punched on Glove, but that stars Adam Sandler. Boogie Night stars Mark Wahlberg. These aren't necessarily yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis type actors. So this is the, uh, this is the jump he's making because after this is The Master and you're getting two incredible performances from Philip, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix. So here is the move. Here is the challenge. Here is the moment where a director goes, I want to go next level this is the guy I need to get him. So no surprise that he was intimidated by him, but then to find out they're both as meticulous as each other. Um, I think they found a, Like you said, they found a kinship with each other and they've worked together a couple of times now, which I've yeah. really enjoyed. I, that, well.
4: It's amazing. And to think about this though, he was up to that point, a little bit of a transformative, mm-hmm. transformative director with Mark Wahlberg, who suddenly just gives this genius portrayal yeah. or diggler yeah. that you yeah. just want to hug this guy. You get Adam Sandler like, Whoa, that's Adam. Sand- okay. Wait. Yeah. And then even in Magnolia, you know, look at the people like Tom Cruise. Tom or whatever. Cruise. Yeah. It's crazy to me that he can't raise money for this movie. If He can't <laughs> raise money for this movie. Who the hell is raising money for anything? That's the <laughs> depressing thing. And the whole, no scope. The scope isn't big. We're not going to get enough people in the, in the seats to make our money back. But Did they they really think this wasn't a scope of a fantastic film? I don't think that's what it was about. And that's kind of sad. And, you know, that's just the money aspect of our industry. But it's crazy to me.
1: And there also might have been a hesitation too, John, because – and Steve, because Magnolia hadn't done that well in the box office as a follow-up to Boogie Nights. And then Punch Drunk Love did even worse in terms of comparison in terms of box office. That's true. And and that was his kind of like F you to everyone who was saying Paul Thomas Anderson can't direct – it's like a straight regular mainstream film. Right. That's as close to mainstream as he's going to come, I think. Yeah. Uh, and so at the time, it maybe the studios is like, I don't know if we want to invest in this guy this much money. So yeah. you get it, but then again, you're like you your job is to uh follow the visions of right. these filmmakers for the chance to make uh, you know an Oscar winning film. <laughs> and frankly PTA is a genius.
0: I think he's an unbelievable genius, but his movies aren't always easy. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like you have to be in the right place. (laughs) And I, I, it's so funny. Like we did Punch Drunk Love uh, earlier this year, Mm -hmm. and it makes me feel a lot of stuff, (laughs) and I'm not entirely sure what all that stuff is. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, And anyway, but they did raise the money. And I just normally I try to talk about things when it happens in the film. I don't know when this happens in the film. So I want to start with they cast, Paul Dano, but he's only cast to play Paul. Mm -hmm. There's another actor playing Eli, and that's Kel O'Neill. And they shot for two weeks. And two things happened after they shot for two weeks. The first thing is, is that Kel O'Neill was taken off the picture. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of rumors that he was intimidated by Daniel Day-Lewis. There was rumors that it was too intense and that's all daniel dane lewis denies that that's the case we don't know why he was taken off the film mm. um and then uh, paul dano had 4 days to prepare for this much bigger crazy part and i honestly i can't imagine anybody else playing this it's mm. it's such a bizarre part and the other thing that happened daniel day lewis you know we've all heard that he stays in character on the set another thing is he doesn't like to see the dailies he just wants to be focused on being the character and after two weeks of shooting paul thomas anderson insisted he come in and watch the dailies and he came he brought him in and daniel day lewis watched it and went well this isn't working at all Hmm. and PTA said yeah it's not working at all and and they felt that they came in so hot. That's how that's how I heard it described, with such intensity and that it wasn't fitting right. And so PTA did some rewrites. Daniel Day-Lewis changed uh, kind of the way he was approaching the character. And then they had to do a bunch of reshoots because they'd recast this part. And I think it's just so important to point out, here we have, these are genius level people. Mm. But making a movie is not like I know what I'm going to make and then I go make it. That's mm. not how it works.
1: Right.
4: I have to like stop you there because that is the one thing about this movie that I've always Mm -hmm. wondered a little bit about, maybe had a little bit of a problem with is Paul Dano playing both of these, playing the brothers, playing both Mm -hmm. of them. Mm -hmm. I get it was a necessity or it became a necessity, but it always has been like, why did you do that? I, you know, we know now, or is it that they're not brothers and that they're the same person? And that well, this whole thing is, a we never see him together, obviously.
1: Absolutely right. You're absolutely right, John. I mean, it's a great point. It's one that people have argued about since that movie came out. Because it's not presented in a way that's very intentional. It is, pre- it is presented in a way for you, the audience, has to kind of make up your mind what happened here. Because the, the first brother is all very kind and cool and very chill. Yep. The other brother is desperate for fame and is, yeah. is a spotlight hog. So you go like, "How? wait, is this the same person? Oh, is it? In fact, after I seen the f- film like two or three times, that was when I realized that they were two different people. It was when someone had put in the cast list. I looked it up. I was like, wait a minute. And so you yeah, don't know was, that right off the bat. I so,
4: appreciate yeah. that from yeah. directors. I appreciate them showing me things instead of telling me things. I really do. Like, I really appreciate that. But in this case, it was just a little bit confusing. Mm -hmm. But of course, we move off of that very soon after the movie starts and and start digging into the meat. But it was just one thing about it that was a little bit like, hmm. (laughs) But it makes sense.
0: It's a weird, it's a really weird choice because the more natural choice is you go, okay, you're going to play Eli, I'll recast Paul. Yeah. You know? Yes, right. And then then you keep the script the same. because. Mm -hmm. But the one thing... Is that sometimes you make a certain choice and that creates another opportunity or another idea? Because in the final scene, we're a long mm-hmm. way from getting there. Yeah. When he t- he comp- says that Paul was the real prophet and talks about him being the afterbirth, well, that only exists if they're twins. You right. can't have those right. lines if they're not twins. They don't yeah. make sense. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, one more thing about pre production is he. This is obviously takes place in California, out near Bakersfield, that kind of area, and so he's scouting locations all over there unfortunately that's all too built up he couldn't find locations that had enough empty space so he left california they go out they look in new mexico they look in nevada they look in arizona and finally they find a small town called marfa texas yeah. hmm. do you john, john roca is that uh, familiar to you no john name? john you're, you're no you're I, just, I just
4: happened to know that just because of it but it was but i i do remember hearing that a bunch of movies started filming in Marfa, Texas. I think after they found this, but man did they find the right
0: place. Well, there, there's yeah. more to it. John uh Roca, that is a that is where they shot Giant. It's the same oh small town God. as wow. Giant. Um what and kismet, not all, Yeah, and it's not uh it's funny how to have the two Johns. It's not just that other movies started shooting after. There was another film crew Scouting that location at the exact same time as PTA, and that was the Cone Brothers scouting locations for No Country for Old Men, yeah. oh, wow. and they ended up shooting at the exact same time. Wow! And apparently, the Cone Brothers booked all the hotel rooms early, <laughs> <laughs> and so so the there will be had to scramble to find space that's competition
1: hilarious. man even amongst the film nerds there's competition <laughs> <laughs> exactly
0: uh would you like, gentlemen like to go back to the 19th century and enter the world of there will be blood well Please. first yeah, we need to find out how each of us okay, came to thank the movie. you thank yeah. you for reminding me of course one of my our most important questions my partner <laughs> reminded me of is <laughs> is uh john grieber do you remember how you first came to this film
4: i do i was working in the audio transfer department at Skywalker sound and I was told we were working on this new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And so my job at that time was not to edit anything or do anything, but it was really more came in towards the end of it. Um, And I do remember, you know, we would have, you know, okay, you got to listen to the DTS version make sure there's no problems you have to do. And I watched it for the first time and, was just shocked and i just started claiming all of the qc time so i could just keep watching it keep hearing the different versions and i had a pretty good relationship with the post supervisor and i just started talking to her about like well give me this detail about it. and so for me it was like the greatest thing i had seen by the way the the name plain view might or might not B have been my computer password for many years since working on that movie, <laughs> an indelible impression. So I, yeah, that's how I came to it by sort of working, finishing it up the sound on the, on the tail end.
1: Uh, John, how about you? I, I, I think I came to it with the friends, uh, with our friends. Maybe Mike and Shannon, or maybe just Shannon, or maybe us. Steve, I know I saw it here. I know I saw it in L.A. and I know that I had to see it opening weekend because it was a Paul Thomas Anderson movie because I would loved Punch Trunk Love so much that I was like, I got to see what's next. And that trailer and Daniel Day-Lewis, and it felt like one of these sparse epics from that time, which I thoroughly, thoroughly love. So I knew I had to see it opening weekend. And I remember just sitting back in my chair. And to this day, I'll still think that it should have won best picture over no country for old men, but no, Coach of Roman, has grown on me as I've gotten older because those conversations appeal to me more as I get an older as a man. Yeah, but at the time, I really felt like that there, there uh, the will be blood was the better film, and I still feel that way honestly. But that moment, I mean, that movie just absolutely put the hook in me. But good man.
0: So I didn't see it in the theater. So John, you and I did oh, not see okay. it together. Is one of those movies I missed, and, and I'm sure you've done this where like you do the. A few years later, the catch up like, uh, you yeah. know, I really do have to get to that film. And it was after my son was born. And there was so many nights where I finally he finally got to sleep and Karen has gone to bed and I'm alone. And so I watched this movie over like four nights um, late, late at night, sitting right here in my office. And it's and it, it was a particularly weird movie to watch in pieces. Because you have no idea where this movie's going. I remember on the fourth night, you know, when I'm watching the, the final sequence, and I'm just like, what the fuck has
1: happened? Like, where?
0: Oh, my God. Um, also,
1: also must appeal to you, Steve, because you adopted a son just as he adopted a young child as well, right around the same time, as you said. So very um, interesting.
0: Yeah, it's true. And, and uh, hopefully my relationship with my son <laughs> will be slightly better. <laughs>
1: Well, you didn't leave Jackson in a box, so I, mean, right. I think that's okay. <laughs> um, so, so
0: let's go into the film. We see that, that old style script with the title, which I think is a great choice. And we fade up on mountains and this super dissonant music that comes from Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead. And we are about to enter what is essentially a 15 minute silent film.
4: Which let's just stop right there. So right there. You're opening this movie with no words. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, I don't want to make too big of a deal out of it, but for me, that's the whole sort of genesis of my love affair with this movie Mm -hmm. is that I'm actually getting to see this guy ticking without anyone else there to have a narrative or any sort of influence and see what is driving this guy. And for me, that's so powerful to not have any dialogue for two minutes, let alone Mm -hmm. nine or whatever it is in this movie. I just I love it.
1: Yeah, it's so good. And we all connect to it, right? Because how many of us? have ever like spent just 15 minutes building something or 15 minutes on our own and we're just working on the car yeah. or working on anything and we're just kind of lost in our own thoughts. So you immediately, it's a universal experience, you immediately gravitate to him and you're just kind of on the journey with him that he's going through and the obstacles he has to overcome in order to uh, hit that oil uh, geyser so it's so so well done and what confidence from Paul Thomas Anderson after struggling as you said Steve to raise the money here he goes with a opening 15 minutes with no dialogue uh, but and that also shows the power of Daniel Day-Lewis as an actor that he is so charming and magnetic that you can't take your eyes off him even when he's not speaking
0: well, all the way back to Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, Paul Thomas Anderson mm. doesn't seem to be a person who's lacking in confidence, <laughs> you know? True, true. Like, he seems like this is what I'm going to do, and then he does it. And we're with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is Daniel Plainfield, and he is down in the mine, Plainfield, hitting yeah. with his pickaxe, and there's sparks coming off the wall. And, you know, and, and I was thinking too, John, about, like, this is all about sound design. This is all about creating that environment and that space that we're living in. What this shows about him, his determination, You know, because he's all alone, and you can see right from the beginning, this is a guy that's never going to quit. One detail that I think is really interesting, when he climbs out of the mine, he has a gun on his back. Mm -hmm. Why do you think he has a gun on his back?
4: Well, I would assume it's for survival in that part of the sort of Wild West world that one needs. Now, we we don't know him yet. Right. Mm -hmm. Not to give anything away, but... I think we're starting to like this man because of his determination. You know, we see this side that maybe it isn't the actual side of him. But the more I would know about Daniel Plainview, he's he has a gun. But mm-hmm. so maybe in that time you had to have it to survive. But I, even if you didn't, I think he's going to have it because no one is taking anything from that man. That, yeah, that's what yeah. I think.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, and that's why you cast someone like Daniel Day Lewis, so the audience immediately yeah. gives him the benefit of the doubt. So when you see the gun, you're not thinking necessarily he's a villain. Oh, and no. starting him off as the protagonist for 15 minutes, we are invested in his story. So I think you're absolutely right, John. He has that gun because it probably was people running around taking you, taking stuff from you, taking materials from yeah. you, shooting you while you're down in that hole digging by yourself, shooting you from up top. Any number of things could have happened to him. So it's just natural protection.
0: I I think it's one of those filmmaking details that goes by, but it's so brilliant because it's Mm. saying nobody is going to take this from me. Right. Right. I'm willing to do what it takes to protect what is mine, you know. Uh, We're up top. There's this, again, I'm going to say amazing shot a lot, and it's really redundant, (laughs) but he's squatting next to the fire, and the tent is in focus in the foreground, and he is slightly out of focus in the background, which, again, that's the confidence, and up on screen comes 1898. We have a question from one of our patrons. Matthew Gramlich asks, Mm. he says, pta is a gangster when it comes to choosing cameras lenses film stock (laughs) i'm curious about that alchemy is making the right choice mathematical depth of field speed etc or is it more aesthetic trial and error process um so he is really specific paul thomas anderson about how he wants to film things Mm -hmm. obviously um and one of the interesting things about him is that he is I won't say he's anti-technology, but he wants to keep things as simple as possible. So he shot this on Panavision cameras, and he uses prime lenses. And what that means is the lenses have a, a built-in focal length. So like you picture like a zoom lens where I can be in kind of wide, and then I can zoom in uh, to a telephoto. They, they were like he had a 40 millimeter, a 50 millimeter, 100 mil- millimeter and a 70, I think. Mm-hmm. And what that does is those are the only focal lengths he can use. He can't use a zoom to make it a 73 millimeter. And he likes that discipline. He doesn't want to use digital stuff because he likes the discipline. He uses um, slower speed film. It's funny, John, our last film was Breathless. Yeah. And one of the big things about Breathless was using really fast film so they could shoot in all these low light conditions. This is really slow film which means it's, it, he has to have really perfect control. Um, and like they even, he wanted things so simple that they even brought a crane in to do a shot and they looked at it and it's like, no, it's too complicated. We can't use a crane, you know? It, so it's all about stripping away for him. Yeah. And by the way, the, the DP is Robert Elswit, and it, you know- Worked with Paul Thomas Anderson a bunch, and it's a gorgeous movie. I think
4: to your point about him wanting to keep things simple, that is very much true. And it's very true when it comes to his sound as Mm. well. Mm. And it's really interesting to me because I group people like Paul Thomas Anderson with people, you know, I mean, like Fincher or Mm. Chris Nolan, who make these movies that they want to make, you know, uh, Tarantino, that they are some of the only people that can get funded to make these Big movies that are just what I want to do. And mm-hmm. almost all of them have much more of a sheen of Hollywood around them. And Paul. Is not that way at all. To the point where, like in Punch Drunk Love, there's a scene when uh, I think it's when Adam Sandler comes into the bathroom and smashes the t- the, the paper towel thing, and mm-hmm. it distorts. It distorts all over the place, which in my industry is no, no. Well, we have to figure out. Okay, we're going to re-record that, and he'll do this, and it was like no, no, we're leaving this in, and everyone's like, what? Wait, what are we doing? And it's like he's so confident. To your point, he's like, no, no, this is. The performance we wanted, I don't care if it distorts, it's real. And I do think there's probably someone that and I know he was uh, in turn, whatever he did with the last Robert Altman movie, he was involved mm-hmm. with Robert Altman, who you can, you can see this aesthetic of reality while at the same time crafting something fantastical, those two things working together. That's very vexing for me. I don't know how you mesh those so successfully, mm-hmm. but he does.
0: He's back down in the mine. He lights a fuse he climbs up the ladder. Again, this is this thing that Paul Thomas Anderson is just the best at. It's just, I'm just always tense in his films. <laughs> so as soon as he's lighting that fuse, I'm going, what, something's going to happen? What's going to happen? Climbs up to the surface. He's trying to pull his tools up on a rope, can't get them up, and then the explosion happens. Daniel Day-Lewis' physicality is just always fascinating on screen. He, hmm. uh, he does things... You just can't stop looking at him. And there was a moment as he's walking back to the mineshaft that he's just wiggling his fingers in an interesting way. And I, I, I don't know why I comment on it because I don't know what it means. But I just was like, he's fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he's climbing downward in a high angle. The DP is actually hanging from a rope in order to shoot this. And a rung breaks and he falls. And apparently, from what I, I believe, I think that's really Daniel Day-Lewis falling. Mm. I think. Wow. I wasn't able to There's one place I saw that said that, but I wasn't able to confirm it hmm. and it's scary. Yeah. And then we're in the black and we hear a big inhale and we're in a profile shot of him waking up. <laughs> and again, this is just this great storytelling.
1: Hmm.
0: His leg is obviously broken and you're going, how is he going to get out? Yeah. And his first concern is the rock and he wipes it clean. And I think it's silver in it. And then he is, climbing up with one broken leg and we get to the top and he is dragging himself along the ground and the camera pans up to the mountains, just showing like how far away from anything he is. Yeah. And then we cut to the assayers office and they're checking what he brought in. And I just think about what PTA chose not
1: to show us. Yeah. I, I, I think, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but I I think this is such a quintessential American movie. And I mean this in a way of like the determination here. You know, this is what we identify with because of what we grew up here in this country, knowing and being taught in school. It's this determination. You know, we're told all the time to overcome these trials, overcome these obstacles that are there to test how much you really want something. And he, Daniel Plainview, is dragging himself up with one hand on the rope, one hand on the rung of the ladder with a broken leg. And then crawls all the way to this place so that he can get what he needs. Um, how long do you think he crawled? How many welts, bruises, scratches, infected cuts did he suffer in his body just to get to that surveyor so that they can give I'm um, Just think about that. And that shows the determination. And a lot of, and when Paul Thomas Anderson pans up to show the mountains and that dissonance music shows again, it's to show you like, this is how far he's going to have to go in order to achieve this thing that he wants to achieve. And he, the fact that he does it, it kind of wins us over as an audience,
4: you know? I love what you're saying in this whole opening sequence, you know, we're getting introduced to him and he's doing this. like you're asking like, what kind of person does this? Yeah. Like you pull yeah. it out. What we don't know at this point. Is that Daniel Plainview has chosen at some point in his life, very clearly, for yeah. direction, whether that's financial gain, it probably is, over human relationships, which is a very mm-hmm. hard thing to do in life yes. because we're constantly in human react in interactions where it's the easier thing is to go, oh yeah, do it, don't worry about it, dude. Or what whatever it is to make things easy in your life. He's made this choice already that that's has no pull for him and we don't know it yet we just sort of think we're seeing a hero moment but we don't really know how this is going Mm. to pan out and again steve what we don't see and the things we aren't told is what i appreciate about it
0: absolutely and john i want to go back to something you said is that i completely agree this is quintessentially american this is the rags to riches story this is literally the American dream self-made person this yeah. is what we grew up with yeah. as the aspirational quality of America I think that's a hundred percent what's going on and of course we're not saying that other countries don't have people right. that are self-made people Obviously. of course yeah, yeah, yeah. but this is a this is definitely an American dream and I, and I love, by the way, that we're watching the, the, the sayers like look at the silver, and then the camera just slowly pans down, yeah, and to see him just laid out on the floor, <laughs> hands
1: behind his head. It's very relaxed, so it's just <laughs> an interesting position. Maybe the mo- maybe the last time we ever see him fully relaxed before all of this starts to happen, because almost in the next frame we jump four years to 1902. So this may be the last time we actually see him as the relaxed Daniel Plainview. Uh, And I I want to bring something up real quick, Steve, that we talked about with Master and Commander. Um, I forget the gentleman's name, the British gentleman who was part of the – Ian. Ian said to us like the the American approach that you can achieve from whatever status, that is American. That doesn't usually happen in Britain. It doesn't usually happen in other countries. So when when I say it's quintessential American, this is something we've been taught and consumed in our media since birth uh, from whatever generation you're from. Uh, uh, in books or in, in movies, it's always been that idea of he dragged himself up by his own bootstraps right. and made this uh, and well, did what he did.
0: And frankly, it is both a positive and negative mythos yes. because 100%. because we're indoctrinated in that idea that mm-hmm. you can work yourself up from nothing. And therefore, someone who is poor, they must obviously be lazy
1: or, right, you know, yeah. like that's the flip side of this right. narrative. Well, he did it. Why can't you? Or she did it. Why can't you? And John, you bring up an excellent point too. this idea that he's sacrificing human relationships in order to achieve this success. How many people, uh, those of us who work in the creative field, all three of us, how many people of us know someone who has made that decision? Like, I'm going to achieve fame or a certain level of celebrity status, no matter what it takes. And yeah. everyone else is going to go to the wayside until I get to that point because I'm if, determined to get. You
4: better be fucking talented if you want to do that in this business. And yeah, yeah they, there's some examples of that. But people like me and under the line people, hmm. you're dead. You're, your career is over if you're yeah, like, you like yeah. not exist that way, right? <laughs> because no one wants to be in a room with you for 10 hours. Exactly. But Daniel Playview true. doesn't care about that.
0: Nope. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, I think that you know, I'm glad we brought this up here. This idea of the American dream and this self-made person is like this is both an exploration of that and a condemnation of yes. It. You know, 100%. that's what this film is. Yeah, mm-hmm. is what is the cost of wow. of being that kind of person. Yep. Um. By the way, uh, I mentioned that one of the sources, uh, for this film for this character is Edward Doheny, and he started as a silver miner. Mm. And but as you say, John, we jumped four years forward. And now instead of being at a silver mine, we're at an oil rig. And we just the way we just are watching what is happening, Mm -hmm. you know, and we're down in the bottle of the mine, two guys working in mud and gunk. And there's obviously like gas in the air. And Daniel's down there almost passing out from the gas. And up top, there's a guy bouncing a little baby. (laughs) <laughs> and we don't know where that baby came from. We don't know who this guy is. We don't know anything about it. We just mm. see it. It's later on there's he's built this kind of pump. the music is tense, which is again gonna be something that's redundant <laughs> um, And what they're doing is they have this big metal thing, which I guess is just designed to crack through the earth, you know and they they roll it up. And then they drop it and it sticks into the mud and Daniel watches it and nods. And then we see down at the bottom oil starts to flow up at the bottom. Yeah. And it's so crazy that the way they get this oil out is just buckets at this point.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do like though, that he sends the other guy down the ladder Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, as a way of a call back to the fact that he won't go down that ladder himself again um uh, to because he might risk breaking his leg again, so he sends the other guy down to take a look, but such an interesting exploration of well how they determine whether this is a real uh strike or not, you know, in terms right. of striking oil I love it, I love the the uh, dedication authenticity here, you know, and the measuring how much oil they have by how far it's essentially it's a huge dipstick it's yeah. what it essentially it yeah. is yeah.
0: And, and they bring it up and, and Daniel, it's slick covered with oil and Daniel touches it and has the oil on his hand. Mm-hmm. And there's one interpretation of this film that I've read is that he is a vampire and that the oil is the blood of the earth. <laughs> wow. And that and there's all and there's, you know, like wow. a lot of theories. There's a lot of stuff where you can kind of go, you know, we meet him in the dark oh, and it. he ends up in a castle and, you know.
4: <laughs> okay.
0: Kills a man of God. Well, we keep talking about the blood of the land and sucking up the blood. And uh, (laughs) there's another, it's funny. You mentioned the the imperfection of the distortion from Punch Drunk Love. There's a moment Mm -hmm. right after we get the oil where oil splatters the lens. Mm -hmm. And that is just such a real feeling moment, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we continue to shots of the baby and his dad. And the dad puts a little bit of oil on the baby's forehead. Then we're working And something breaks, and Wood goes down the shaft and hits the guy. There's a spray of blood. Daniel's down there with him covered in blood. And it happens so suddenly and so shockingly.
1: Yeah.
0: And then we come up. There's a close-up of Daniel covered in blood. He's looking at the baby. The baby's crying. And we know what this is about. Again, the storytelling is just perfect. Mm. And he tries to give the baby some booze.
1: I think you did that back then, didn't you? You put a little something in the uh, something when, in the bottle. When we first
0: uh, had a kid and there was a baby shower and uh, John Griever, you know, some of the ladies like Ruthie Rosen who are at this baby shower and Helene Jaffe yeah. went up to Karen and said, you know, if he, ever the kid won't sleep, just take a little bit, take a shot of whiskey, mm-hmm. put your finger in the shot of whiskey, rub the whiskey on the baby's gums, and then drink the rest of the shot yourself.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
4: I was going to say that's good because the first part's a bunch of bullshit that didn't help my <laughs>
0: kid at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and again, you're going like, what is going to happen here? What What is this movie? And we cut to a two shot of them in a train. And we stay on them for a long time of Mm. Daniel and the baby. And the baby reaches up to kind of touch Daniel Day-Lewis's face. And the shot's gorgeous. And then as we're looking at this, we hear for the first time a human voice. And that is 15 minutes into the film. (laughs)
3: Ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it. And he talks about
0: how much the well is producing and how wealthy he is. And it ends with him saying, ladies and
3: gentlemen, if I say
0: I'm an oil man, you will agree. This speech is the one thing that is directly out of the book. Oh, wow. It's like word for word. What happens wow. in the book. So let's talk about Daniel day Lewis's voice.
1: Yes. Yes. It's based on, <laughs> it's based on John Houston, uh, yeah, from what he me. did in, uh, in Chinatown. And so he essentially is a younger version which, of course, is very similar to the character that, Dan- that John Houston plays in Chinatown with the water and everything like that. This is kind of that kind of human being who would do things like this at this time um, in this country.
0: Well, and it's weird, the Chinatown connection is so strange because, by, by the way, uh, Daniel J. Lewis says it's not based on John Houston. But it totally
4: sounds like. John I don't Houston.
1: care what he says. I know what I'm listening to, and that's damn well John Houston.
4: I don't know. Well, sounds like and based upon are two very different things. But yeah, it's hard to deny it. It's
0: hard to deny this song. It's, it's hard, right? <laughs> well, and the Chinatown connection is weird because that's a movie that's, you know, one of the characters is based on William Mulholland, a well-known name in Southern California. Yeah, yeah. And now this movie, the character based on Doheny, another well-known name who has streets named after him in Southern California. Yeah. Mulholland and Doheny, they, I'm sure they knew each other. Yeah, They're yeah, right yeah. at the same era. So w- in pre-production uh, – PTA and Daniel Day-Lewis are are communicating and they're sending each other tapes. And, you know, he sends Daniel Day-Lewis some period photographs or some uh, silent film or some audio from the period. And finally, Daniel Day-Lewis sends back a recording of the voice he wants to do. And PTA hears it for the first time and thought it was absolutely crazy. (laughs) And then this is the next thought that he had. And I love this. He says, you're collaborating with an artist for a reason. Mm -hmm. If it's crazy, then that might be exactly what I need to make this work. Like Mm -hmm. you didn't hire an artist so you could tell them what to do. You don't tell Dan, he's not supposed to tell Daniel Day-Lewis how to act. (laughs) He hired Daniel Day-Lewis, you know?
4: And and another thing about it, when you're like, whoa, this man is taught," you know, the way he's talking, Mm -hmm. it's crazy. He stands out as a different kind of human being to us something's different about this guy mm. and I don't know if I like it or not or if I relate to it or not but there is mm. something different about this man than my father than me than you know no, other people
1: I think it's brilliant too that it's it's nine years later when we see this scene which and we don't get that until later on in the scene and he the way he's sitting his entire approach to this he is now a very um experienced man of going into these towns and pitching himself, and pitching what he can do, and nothing phases him. Nothing phases him, the arguments, the blah, 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 nothing, he just sits there. And I love the wide-open stance, right? There is a, a way of where he, th- there's such a confidence in that stance when he's sitting in the chair. It is Nothing intimidates him, nothing upsets him. He's just sitting there going like, oh, "Look, you guys are gonna, you need me, I don't need you. And that's the approach. And I love those little things. Even the way he tilts his head up, to almost like kind of give them a little bit like of like who do you think you're talking to kind of move i love it i just love it yeah and you're right the 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 voice fits the character because he's out of step from everybody else but there's a confidence to that voice yeah and only he can carry it off
0: i'll I'll tell you something i think and of course there's no evidence for this at all but Mm. i think that is not daniel plainview's voice I think oh if you if he we had heard him speak oh. in the earlier scenes Great point. we would have heard a guy with an accent with probably a who was a higher voice I think this is a created character I think he chose to be this person I don't think he was born this person
4: Wait wait hold say a little bit more about that cuz I think I understand what you mean <laughs> but you mean that that Daniel Day-Lewis created the sound for this character is that what you're saying no no no, no,
0: no. i He's, mean that daniel yeah. plainview was a guy that had a different voice he had an accent he came from somewhere and oh. that he and he chose to become the self-made man mm-hmm. if we had heard him talking at the silver mine or at the oil he, did, he didn't sound like this it took 10 years for him to
1: put oh, on this character i
4: have never thought about that but that's <sighs> yeah that's, that's very believable
1: and that's not out of their own possibility. Right now, on trial, Elizabeth Theranos is on trial for that oh, yeah. stuff that she pulled. And if you watch that documentary, yes, right. she put on, she put voice. on that voice her to imitate Steve, Steve Jobs. jobs. Voice, yeah, fake- yeah, yeah. So it's not out of their own possibility. I love
4: that. And also, are yeah. we going to talk about how he's using his adoptive son as a. <sighs> Yes, as a, as a as a as uh, a ploy. I mean, because I didn't know that when I first, or I didn't think that when I watched the movie mm-hmm. the first time. I was actually heartwarmed by this connection with his son, and this, and I <laughs> I don't even know that I I can assume that it wasn't a, a real relationship. I don't know what I can assume, but I do know. There's something non-truthful about that relationship.
0: Mm. I Mm. think we have to talk about this. It (laughs) is so central to the movie because like there is the experience you have when you watch it the first time and then it's trying to figure out, well, wait, what was really going on? I think the first time I'm watching, I think it is at this point, a love, a real relationship. Mm. And then watching it again, I think it's much, much more complicated. Oh yeah. Yeah. And we'll get to some of it as it goes along. And right now, he's basically, there's probably oil in this community, and he's trying to make a sale to these people about why he should be the person to drill the oil. Out of all men
3: that beg for a chance to drill your lots, maybe one in 20 will be oil men. The rest will be speculators. That's men trying to get between you and the oil men to get some of the money that ought by rights come to you.
0: And what's interesting is that we start off in this extreme close-up of him. And we don't – and again, this is Paul Thomas Anderson's confidence. Me, as an editor, like I'm like, well, I'm going to show the guy talking. I got to show the reverse and show the people he's talking to. That's just normal. (laughs) And Paul Thomas Anderson is so – he's like, no, you're going to look at this. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to see the people for a long time. And then we end up in this two-shot and we see standing behind him is this kid. And we realized that's the kid that was the baby. You know, it's like, I think at this point, we're like, oh, that's so cool. He adopted the kid. That's great. I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about how they cast this kid. His name's Dylan Freezer. And the casting director, whose name is Cassandra Kulukundis. She went all the normal places, all L.A., all the child actors, went to New York, all the child actors. And they just couldn't find the right kid because they're all actors from L.A. and New York. And so she said they they went, we need we need someone from Texas. We need someone, a kid that looks comfortable shooting a shotgun. And so the casting director went to Marfa, Texas and went to the local schools. And there's one principal said, you should check out this kid. She meets this kid, Dylan, goes, oh, that's pretty cool. Makes an appointment to, to go to his house and meet the family. And she's so late and so rushed that day that she's speeding, gets pulled over by a cop. The cop takes her license in registration, is looking at the license and says, oh, I think you're coming to my house tonight. Because the cop was the kid's mom. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Let, so she let, let the casting director off with a warning. And, you know, they they say, okay we're going to hire this kid. But the mom's not a movie person. So Mm. she doesn't. And the kid's not really an actor. And she doesn't really know who this Daniel Day-Lewis guy is that the kid's going to be spending so much time with. So she goes, I should probably watch one of his movies. And she asks what's a good movie of his? And they say, oh, Gangs of New York. So she watches Gangs of New York, (laughs) decides that he's a monster. Right. right? (laughs) And says, like, no, absolutely not. My kid is not going to be working with him. And someone fortunately gave her Age of Innocence. And she went, okay he's an actor. (laughs) it's gonna be fine that's how this kid gets cast
4: Um, that's amazing something that just dawned on me like maybe we can assume that he actually is on the level and that hw is in fact his business partner i mean yes he's his adoptive son but in his mind he's his business partner we know things are coming up that i won't spoil now that change the situation but maybe maybe there is a a good, loving, fatherly thing in there somewhere when it works, when the relationship works, maybe?
0: So here's my opinion. I think there is 100% it's there, and I think it's his denial of that and his inability to deal with those emotions that is a huge part of his mm. downfall. Mm-hmm. That's what I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I-, I think he's told himself, I'm just using this kid. Here's one of my other questions. He gives this really great spiel at the beginning of why he's the guy to do it and why he is trustworthy. Is he trustworthy? If he had gotten this job, would he have done what he says that he was going to do?
1: Well, we, we don't. We can't make that assessment at this time, can we? Because we don't know. I want to
4: say yes, though, at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't you feel, feel like, like, you like he's would. a yeah. Shylock or like, you know, that I don't know. I don't know. But I feel like right. I want to say yes at this point.
0: I like, thought that at first. And now I don't think so, based on what happens later in the movie. But let's let's readdress that issue. Because it also could be that things that happen in the film make him make choices that he wouldn't have made had they not gone that way. Um, but as he gives this whole really great speech, then the, the crowd that he's talking to just erupts into yelling at each other. They totally obviously don't trust each other. It's the first time we really see a wide shot where we see this crowd and... He gets up and grabs his kid and walks out.
3: No, where are you going? I don't need the lease. Thank you. We need you. We need you. Too much confusion. Thank you for your time. No no no. There's no confusion. I wouldn't take the lease if you gave it to me as a gift.
1: Because he realizes it's a bad deal. Here's my answer, Senator. Nothing. Nothing. (laughs) You can have my answer now. That's essentially the movie bolt. Here. Making the coming to them and then saying, you know what? I don't need you. And it's, it makes it even more of a desperate situation for them. It's brilliant. Yeah. And now he's just
0: with a, a family and he's just trying to sell them. And what we get the sense of is this family is farther away from where the oil might be. Hmm. And so he's offering them less money and he's sitting with his kid. And by the way, the, the, eye light, the sparkle in Daniel day Lewis's eyes throughout this whole film is amazing. And he is an actor he might be in character all the time, but, man, he knows where that light is. Mm-hmm. And he knows where to put his head to make oh. it look just perfect, technically.
1: He's a professional, man.
0: Yeah. And it's like there's this moment that the business deal has stalled a little bit. And then he turns to the mom and
3: says, What age your children, ma'am? 10 and 12. Mr. Plainview, a question, sir. Where is your wife? She died in childbirth, Mrs. Bankside. So well, it's just me and my son now.
0: I think this is where you can see the full Machiavellian choice to use his kid and his quote-unquote dead wife to make this sale.
1: (laughs) Machiavellian? Do you really think it's Machiavellian? Well, I I, yes, I do. Doesn't that imply that he's evil in some? So have you made your decision that he's an evil guy? Because Machiavellian insinuates evil, doesn't it? I think it has been interpreted that way.
4: Yes. yes. <laughs> I, that is not
0: how I, I, I think Machiavellian means you have a plan and you are working the plan to achieve your goal. It Fair also enough.
4: means it's self-serving. So, 100%. so yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I think there's, there's a middle ground here in that maybe he's not even realizing how Machiavellian he is or how, where he lands on it. But this evidence mm-hmm. keeps or starts really to come in like, oh, wait a minute. How do I even know you had a wife? You know, there's just we don't know much about it. And it starts to a little chisel of doubt starts coming in about who this guy is.
1: I think that's absolutely true. A little chisel of doubt for sure. The other side of this, though, is like what were the appearances like at that time as a dad without a wife and bringing a child like Some towns might look at that as sinful, that you haven't found another woman to marry. We can't look at it through 2021 eyes, obviously. So at that time, was that something? So he creates the story about the dead wife in order to kind of take a little bit of a shield from that kind of judgment possible. But, Steve, as we see throughout the movie, he's very manipulative in getting what he wants. So you might be 100% right that he's Machiavellian in this way.
0: Well, and I want to put another thought in your mind. Uh Uh-oh. Where is the kid's mom? <laughs> we don't know that mom's dead. That mom could have just lost her kid. Her kid have been kidnapped. She might I'll not know thing. what happened to him. I'll put another thing in. What is his mom? Now put another thing in your <laughs> mind. Well, like and, and and when he says this, you know, I don't even think. Did he actually adopt him legally? <clears throat> I don't. For the first
4: think, time, we, you're making me think about scenarios. There's a million things it could be. You yeah. know, it could have been an opportune moment where something happened. Someone had a small baby, someone was pregnant and he saw an opportunity
3: Hmm. and
4: just leveraged it and just kind of just went with it. Like, ah, well, you know, you're a prostitute and I know we're all here and you expect, but you actually just gave birth to a kid and you don't want him. Okay. So we'll just, who knows a lot of kind of things, but yeah, I'm not Hmm. really believing that he was married. Certainly not. And I don't know. I don't, I don't no, believe the story. I believe this was an opportune uh, transaction. And the reason mm. I can believe that is because of what happens later and that opportune transaction that he takes up at, with regards to his son. So, yeah, I never have thought about that, but I think you're right.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, frankly, we don't know that the, we assume the guy who died is the actual child's father. But we don't know how that guy got there. We don't know where the mom was. We don't know if we know nothing. Right. And we don't know what that what he did with the baby in the first three months he had him. You know, did he try to get rid of him? Did he you know, did he immediately come up with this plan? We don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, like normally we would go, oh, he feels a sense of responsibility for this child that doesn't have a parent. Right. But I don't think we really think that that's what this guy Daniel Plainview is. Mm -hmm. We get to meet Paul. Paul. Played by Paul Dano. Um, and he comes in very tentatively and says,
3: You look for oil. That's right. When do you pay for a place that has it? That well, depends.
0: And what we get next is this dance. Daniel Plainview is trying to get as much free info as he can get. And Paul is trying to give him as little info and get some money for it.
3: Where are you from? I would be telling you. That's what I want to sell you. What are you doing in Signal Hill? We have oil and it seeps through the ground. Do you want to pay me to know? Well, where just because it there's something on the ground doesn't mean there's anything beneath it. Why did Standard Oil buy up land?
0: And we reveal sort of Daniel Plainview's right hand man, which is Fletcher Hamilton, played by uh, Kieran Hines, hmm. who who has one of the great movie faces, I think. PTA doesn't explain who this guy is. <laughs> He's we just Just there. Just there. Well, who the um, hell's
4: going to explain it in real life to you? They're not in real life. You're going to have to just figure it out if you come into a situation. Yeah. And damn it, I love I love him for that. I really do. Even if it means I, I miss I, things.
0: Yeah. Well, but it also keeps you coming back, yeah. and it keeps you mm. thinking about it. It's yeah. the unfinished pieces that keep you coming back. But I actually disagree. I think almost every room I've walked into, they say, "Oh, this is my assistant, so and so." my that, that's what they always do. But you don't usually not introduce people.
3: What church do you belong to?
0: That is a significant question for Paul Sunday. Yeah. But a completely surprising
3: question for Daniel Plainview. I uh, I enjoy all faiths. I don't belong to one church in particular. I, I like them all. I like everything.
4: Which is, you know, for anyone who's religious, I would imagine a preposterous answer, you know, especially back
1: then. And for anyone who watches politics, very close to the answer that Trump gave when they asked him what his favorite book of the Bible is. (laughs) They're all great. They're They're all great.
0: And then they make their agreement for $500. And the last moment is so interesting because Plainview reaches to shake his hand. And in the big, like, you know, businessman sort of handshake says...
3: If I travel all the way up there and I find that you've been lying to me, I'm going to find you and I'm going to take more than my money back. Is that all right with you?
0: And Paul very confidently, I think, says. Yes, sir. All right. Then. Mm. Which I think is a great it's because we go like, oh,
1: he's not lying. You
0: know, yeah. in yeah. that
1: moment. Also, Paul Dano initiates the shaking of the hand. Daniel Plainview initiates the grabbing of the hand paul dano or paul sunday sits there and listens to daniel give him that warning and he does it doesn't phase him it doesn't unsell him it doesn't scare him he has this look of peace on his face and he, then he goes and he just says absolutely and starts the shaking of the hand yeah. i love that like I, these are little character moments as actors when you notice it it's like that's what they're showing you the relationship here
4: i would be remiss if i did not point out and my son would be pissed at me, that Paul Mm. Dano is a friggin' legend. The guy has not Mm. been in that many movies that most people have seen. But when you really watch him put on, you know, really let himself take over a role, I mean, he can stand head-to-head with Daniel Day-Lewis as we keep seeing throughout this movie. So props to him for really holding his own against someone who's as much of a powerhouse as Lewis.
1: Also his... He's in a relationship with uh, Zoe Kazan, who is I think Ilya Kazan's granddaughter. So oh, wow. that woman is incredibly intelligent. Oh, absolutely! And she writes and uh, performs and acts and produces. She did the big, so. sick,
4: right? yes, yeah. the big Sick, right? Yes, the Big Sick. Yes, yeah.
1: absolutely. Yep. We cut to a one-point
0: perspective looking down these train tracks, and a car is driving along with it. And this shot—it's such a great shot of entering into this environment, this town we're going to be—we're going to spend most of the movie in. The camera pans with the car. And then it dollies behind this train station. We see how much we're in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And then the car comes towards camera. The music is super, super dissonant again. And speaking of the music, we have a question from another one of our patrons who writes, I'm a big fan of the guy you'll be talking to who won an Emmy last week. My question is about the score, as it seems to me to be such a huge part of the film. I'd love to hear your thoughts about it and the role the score plays in the film. And that question comes from Matthew Grieber. That's interesting. He seems to have the same last name as our
4: guest. I, you know, uh, I'd say no relation, but there's 0% chance that there's anyone with that last name in this country <laughs> that's not related to me. So, um, yeah, you know, I mean, he's a huge fan of this uh, podcast and, you know. Let's answer his question.
0: Um, <laughs> this is, of course, John's brother, yeah. um, and uh, <laughs> I think a Paul Thomas Anderson has great taste in music. Yeah. B. It is so stressful. This music throughout the film. It's it's non melodic most of the time. It just adds tone. It's not like light motifs and melodies and themes. This is like it just makes you feel the tension of the environment. For me. Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm think about for a second when you look at you know Sydney or Heart Eight or Boogie Nights or Magnolia and you think about the Amy Man Amy Man Amy mm. you know mm-hmm. the score the the source music from the periods how the fuck yeah. does this guy go oh I really want the guitarist from Radiohead <clears throat> by the way <laughs> nothing he does in this movie has any resemblance to anything Radiohead has ever done you know right. he knows i know that he has a very deep relationship with Johnny and they've done a bunch of projects together now, but to, to make that leap that I'm going to get this guy, you know, I know you, you really are into distance and like, let's just do something. It's again, to your point, you're hiring an artist and they're going to come at you with something that hopefully you're not expecting. So when you have that first note that comes in and it's so dissonant and it's unnerving. And for a lot of people, a lot of people close to me, like my wife, it's like, what the, it's like almost off putting to the point where you're not interested anymore. It does the opposite Mm -hmm. for me. And it's, it's just doing that thing, Steve, where you're uncomfortable and you're just a little bit stressed out for a lot of the movie, even though it's not a quiet place too. This is, there will be blood and there's a lot of open scenes, but yet that score continually is continually mm. just put you on guard and i love mm. that about it and i don't believe for a second that paul knew what he was going to get when he got it i just i like to believe that
1: i don't know right i mean like where's where's trent resner at this time mm. right i mean who thought the nine inch nails guy would be able to swing over and start composing soundtracks And composing music like he did for soul, for fuck's sake. Which is brilliant, by
4: the way. Right?
1: But a a few years earlier, um, uh, Johnny Greenwood had had did the music for this documentary called Body Song, which was a compilation of old movies from the 1900s, 1800s, or late 1800s, 1900s. And he did the score for the whole documentary. It's an hour and a half documentary. And I wonder if maybe, that was his submission sample, or maybe, as you said, John, they have a great relationship. Maybe that Paul Thomas Anderson had seen that possibility. That's what happened, by the oh, way. Really? That is oh, really? Oh shit! Happened. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, you're right, absolutely yeah. right. He had seen he had seen the film, loved it, well, asked Johnny Greenwood to
0: do it, <laughs> and it sounds like that my understanding is that he he agreed to take the gig, and then right before he was supposed to start composing the music, he panicked and said, "You know what? I can't do this. I'm not." I can't, I can't do this kind of music. And PTA apparently said, you know, gave him the confidence, you know, gave him the pep talk. (laughs) And two weeks later, basically the whole score showed up. And and, and what I find interesting, what I'm really curious is that I wonder if they had a spotting session and a a spotting session is where you would go through with the composer and go, this is what I want to have happen here. I want the Mm. downbeat here. I you know, just talk or talk through the scenes in whatever way you do it because there's not a sense of sync. In other words, there, there's there's not moments where it's like this has to hit at this moment, mm. which is the way music frequently works in film. It's just sort of tone-based. So I wonder if he just handed him the music and PTA figured out where to put it, you know.
4: I wanna bet that you are correct because, like you say, mm. it's all drony. It's all and then that mm. droning is, you know, creates so many of the emotions. But yeah, there's no like John Williams, you know, like, you know, mm-hmm. the, the the zing when the whip crack comes down right. for Indiana Jones, mm-hmm. which is, oh, we made a picture change, we cut three frames out, okay, shit, now we have to recut the music, that's not happening here, and I don't, I'm not privy to what happened on the stage, but I want to say mm-hmm. they just probably had a very good music editor who just... Made the scene did. work and i don't think paul does a lot like he likes that opening scene he's not changing it he's not frame fucking as we like to call it uh, and <laughs> i won't give away any studios but i might or might not work for a few of them up on the chain that are just constantly changing they have three editors they've got two directors and it's changing and changing and changing until literally it's almost too late and then they finish it i don't believe paul works that way because he he knows what he wants and i think this music just resonated with him make it work
0: John, just so so people who are listening who might not know know, so what what's the problem with me after I give you my cut going in and changing a couple of frames or rearranging a, a line of dialogue? Why, why is that a problem? Well,
4: Steve, it's so funny you ask. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's not a huge problem assuming we have time. But what happens is, you know, we start working and we're doing our thing and I'm cutting the dialogue and my guys are doing effects and we got the Foley walk and they're like, oh, well, we have a new version. Okay, fine. But what has to happen is... We have to get that new version. Then we have to conform all of our audio sessions to now match the length of that version, which means, oh, you're ending this. Well, OK, well, this effect has to be truncated and you're healing and fixing. And now we have a new scene. Okay, we got to cut stuff for this scene. The more you keep doing that, the I mean, it's part of it. But the more you keep doing it, the more frenetic everything is. And the less you're actually focusing on the actual flow of the story, you're just fixing things in the moment so that you're not behind the mix stage. Because mm. mix stages are expensive, and you know, you're talking over a thousand dollars an hour usually. And it's like wow. you're just yeah, you're just trying to keep up. So yeah, those it's beautiful to get a locked it locked picture having said that i'm working on two movies right now one of them was locked they turn it over they've made four different versions since that point so they're not really clear on what locked means but it's very normal (laughs) changes but when you're making them on your final mix that's you know that's tough
0: well and and, and just to point out it's like if if i was editing this film and i just took out an entire scene that'd probably be pretty easy for that's not a huge deal but if I take four frames here and eight frames there, and add six frames back in here, and do like fifty of those, that's really really well, hard. Steve,
4: you'd oh. be a frame fucker at that point because <laughs> <laughs> whenever you see the second editor come on the show, and there's, now there's three, you know you're screwed. Like when John, one oh the, Johnny hands or Edward Scissor, you just know that. Okay, well we now they're trying to change it. They don't like it, so they're going to keep doing these minute changes that, does this really help you tell the story is this really changing what we're seeing i don't know they this
2: is
1: now work. my this is now my new term in reviews yeah frame fuck
4: <laughs> yep this feels like
1: they were frame yep. fucking let me tell you right yep. now yeah oh i love it, I love so, it. The, so, by the way
0: i i now want to do a cinephiles compilation of every department bitching about what pisses them off <laughs>
4: yep. yes i got a lot to say so- about it
0: It's funny because like the the version, the cinematography version of a frame fucker is a tweaker. Oh, so a a tweaker is someone who who like, no, I just think need the light, change that light, put a little little bit of flag in there. No, it's still not good. Let's uh, let's switch the 2K out for a 1K and have a And so you could like we got to shoot. We got to. And they're trying to make it incrementally better and wasting time on the set. And it's the same thing. Time is money. And that's that's a tweaker. Yeah, I, they're, they're, there's probably you, there's probably a name for the sound editor problem. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. And, and what's funny, too, is everybody gets fucked down the line yeah. because mm-hmm. at the beginning of the project, there's lots of time. Yep. The more you move along and you get yep. closer to that mix date, time is compressed. Yeah. You know, yeah.
4: the unspoken agreement is the smaller your show, the more indeed is the less money, the less time we have for sound the more you're likely to lock it and turn it over to us so that we can use our time the best possible way without dealing with it. The more money you have, the bigger studio it is. It's like, we don't care. Like what you got, no, you will just do what we want to do until it's done. And, and Hey, that's their prerogative, but um, it's also
0: more cooks, you know, because when you're with the studio, you have 50 people that have to look at it and
4: like it. Oh yeah. yeah.
0: So we're now at Marfa, Texas, This is a town of like 2,000 people. PTA loves shooting at locations like this, particularly with this as a small town, because everybody's together. It's like you're on a mission. You're all living together. You're partying together. You're hanging out together. You're working together. And he felt the camaraderie was so much higher when they were shooting in Texas than when they shot other stuff in California, Hmm. um, which totally, totally makes sense to me. And we have arrived at the Sunday farm, and there is Able Sunday, and we have a lie that we're going to tell which is
3: my name is daniel plainview this is my son hw are you hunting hunting for quail
0: <laughs> and i love the way the whole, this whole thing lays out because the sunday family is going well we could make you di-. you know they say can we camp on your land and not only say sure of course you can but can we make you dinner and can we give you this and give you that they're so generous mm-hmm. for this very poor family with this two strangers that show up on their land
1: isn't this the location that he told him about? So how does Paul not warn them ahead of time that they might be coming? Right.
4: Well, but Paul doesn't go back. Right. I don't think right. he's gone. Yeah, Paul, Paul doesn't go Paul's back. Gone. And also maybe this is again, showing us this different kind of human being, you know, you have some human beings yeah. here who are choosing social interaction. They're choosing the connection and uh Plainview is just using that. He's just
0: yep. using it. He mm. totally knows how to play it. By, yeah. by the way, in the book, Paul is not twins with Eli. No. Paul uh, has run away because he does. He's not religious is that oh. he finally rebels against that. And then later on, what the book becomes about is actually a battle between a forming of a union against the he's not names, not Plainview. view against the oil character mm. and the big. So it's it's much more of a labor versus capital sort of movie. And Paul comes back as like one of the main workers who becomes the union organizer. That's, oh, what, that's what the book ends up being about. Very interesting. Um, well, at least I'm a third of the way through it. That's what it's about so far. <laughs> um, and one of the other things we hear is that basically nothing grows here. They mm. raise goats. Corn won't grow there. They don't have any bread because grain, you know, wheat won't grow there. And they're kind of making their campsite. And up comes the second version of Paul Daniel. Yeah. Right.
3: My name is Eli. Yes, you're uh, Eli Sunday. Welcome.
0: Um, and they have a little interaction with him And then it's the next day and they're out hunting And and as they fire their shotguns And are running through the woods H.W. steps in something And calls his dad over And we look and there is oil um, And I had this moment of the opening To the Beverly Hills Hillbillies in my head <laughs>
1: Come and
0: listen to a story About a man named Jed A poor mountaineer barely kept his family fed And then one day he was shooting at
3: some food And up through the ground Come a bubbling crew
0: Oil that is black gold Texas tea. And Daniel smells it, gets it on a stick, puts it, opens up a box of matches, and lights it on fire.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: By the way, they couldn't put anything flammable on the ground. There was a lot of environmental protections there. So what they had to do in order to have this pool of oil is they had to dig a big hole, then they had to Line the hole with like plastic. Then they had to put soil back into the hole, and then they could fill that hole with oil so that the oil never touched the actual dirt of the environment.
4: Mm. Wow! Hey, is the wow. idea that when they were out there hunting, that they were taking pot shots into the ground?
0: Ooh. Oh, I never thought that. I had I don't either until so. So you were just yeah. saying
4: that. But I'm just thinking, mm. like, well, they weren't hunting, and were they just like, would, would right. that even do anything? Would that would the bullet go far enough to? I don't know, but. It does mm-hmm. make me question everything just a little bit.
0: And after we found the oil, he pats the kid on the shoulder.
1: Yeah, they have a father-son moment that's real, that makes you think, well, maybe he does have like a real
0: yeah.
1: intention to share what he's building with this young man and down the road. I think he does. I think yeah, he I think he loves him. And I, it's, it's not until he goes deaf that everything changes. Yeah. And it's just that moment, of, like all this, you, you, you really start to care for this guy and what he's doing, and then, you know.
0: Well, let me ask you this question, because tragedy. the next scene is we go, we're kind of walking up the hill, and it's a great mm. shot where the camera is down on them, and then it tilts up to reveal, you know, this huge landscape in front of them, and we hear uh,
3: Daniel gives the plan. He says, If there's anything here, we take it to the sea. What we do is we build a pipeline to Port Huynemi or Santa Paula. It's about 100 miles. And we do a deal with Union Oil, And we don't need the railroads and our shipping costs anymore. You see? Yeah. Now, in this moment, if what
0: happened didn't happen, if everything went according to plan, is H.W. his business partner, and does he inherit the business? Yes.
1: Yeah. I think think so, so too. Yeah.
0: That's why I go, like, I think he does love him. Mm. I think later on he's going to choose not to love. How much are we going to pay them? Who's that? Sunday family.
3: I'm not gonna give them oil prices. I give them quail prices.
0: That's the first sort of well, uh, let, it, let me is, is this ethical? This, let me ask that question.
3: Uh,
1: I don't it's business. And if you can get the prices that you can get the prices at, sadly, that's the game. And I think right?
4: also there's a little bit of a God complex with Daniel Plainview. He's yeah. like they they wouldn't understand how to deal with this. I do understand how to deal with it, and I can do it, and therefore. What I want is uh, it's validated and it's logical. So they're actually going to do okay with these quail prices I'm going to give them. And that's their lot in life. I, I think he's got a lot of rationalization and yeah. that kind of stuff going on. Well, I
3: believe in plain speaking.
4: So this is a
3: beautiful ranch. I love hunting for quail. My boy's been sick, though; know? He needs fresh air. Doctors all say he needs plentiful fresh air. So... What would you say would be a fair price for this lot?
0: The actor playing Abel is David Willis, and I love how he's just kind of overwhelmed at this moment. You know what I mean? He doesn't know what to do. And it's Eli who says $6 an acre. Uh, $6? Thank you,
3: Eli. And and with the improvements to to, to the ranch over the years at $500. I'd like to offer you $3,700.
0: And it's Eli who says...
3: No. The Lord has sent this man here, Eli. Yes, I believe he has.
0: And Eli asked the key question.
3: What about our oil? Oh, God.
0: And you see Plainview have to pivot. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, okay, my initial plan of quail prices, that's not going to fly. Right. And now he's sort of battling with
3: Eli. Oh, do you have someone who can drill for it? Do you think there's oil here? I know there is. It's very expensive to drill, to get it up and out of the ground. You ever tried that before? How much is it? costly well our oil sits right up on top of the ground i believe that's called seepage doesn't necessarily mean there's anything underneath what it. would you give us for it i don't
0: know let's talk about eli <laughs> okay i find him really unknowable or or there are there are layers that are not knowable for me hmm. so is he how self-aware is he is i guess what my question is Like, is it all an act and Machiavellian in this case, or is he a true believer who has character issues or like,
1: how would you, what do you think? I see him as like one of those evangelical preachers. I see him like Jim Baker. I see him like Jerry Falwell. I see him like these people. Uh, or Roberts, you know, who like uh, create these scenarios, use God to get money from people, use religion or the promise of religion. So in essence, the film, you know, it could be read in a really subtle way. It is denigrating this idea of business and this idea of, you know, using other people's ignorance to their deficit to in order to pad your pockets Uh, and also making a striking statement about religion and about the idea of organized religion and how it's used or how the idea of God is used here. Because both Eli and Daniel are using God here for their own benefits, right? Oh, the Lord sent me. He doesn't believe in God. Uh, Or if he does, it's not a big deal in his life. And Eli is using it in his own way to try to, and will use it throughout the movie in his own way to try to get the best of Daniel the whole time. So he is a worthy adversary to Daniel, but just not, a hundred percent his equal,
4: and we got prepped for this with Paul's negotiation, yes. Yes. with yeah. Daniel, and yet, so what? I, it makes me feel is like, well, these brothers knew there was oil. There's nothing mm-hmm. they could do about it. They couldn't leverage it. They didn't. They didn't have the the wherewithal. Yet Eli is ambitious too. Yeah. He's ambitious yeah. as hell, and that's the problem because so is Daniel, and it's like yeah. this chess match that just starts right there, mm-hmm. and it really doesn't finish till the very last you know f- part of the movie but yeah it's yeah. so uncomfortable to watch it's so uncomfortable <laughs> it <is. laughs> that, that, that scene I, I love
0: it and what's interesting is you watch daniel walking back his ignorance like at first mm. it's i'm here for quail right yeah and then it's like okay yeah maybe there's some oil here maybe i know some oil people i might i might know something about that do you know anything about that he's kind <laughs> of putting it on eli yeah. like you You can't do anything about this oil. Which again, you know, like the previous time he's pitching a family, he's like, I am an oil man. I'm a real oil man. And this is everything I bring in. Now it's the opposite. It's, Mm -hmm. well, I might know some people. I might be able to call someone. (laughs) Um, And then finally we get to.
3: What would you like, Eli? $10,000. For what?
0: For my church. Does he already have a church, by the way?
4: (sighs) Oh, I don't. I
0: like. Is he already preaching?
4: I, I didn't think so, but but I want to feel like yeah, on a real small level, mm-hmm. or his aspiration. I think he's like starting out, but he knows yeah. what he wants. He 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 has this thing in his head. He wants this. He's been wanting this. So I don't know mm-hmm. if he started already, but
1: um, Daniel is his oil well. Mm. I for like e- how you said that. For Eli, Daniel is his oil well because the no, other it was John or Steve. like you said. Like they, they, they talked about it. they. Know, the Sunday Brothers know they have oil here, but they can't leverage it. No one's, no one's going to come along that they know that's going to help them. And just by chance, Daniel Plainview comes along, and so this is Eli's uh, essentially digging into the dirt to get the oil out of it, and Daniel is his oil well. Right. So uh, that's what he's trying to do, and he's going to use any tactic, any method possible. And look, Eli's smart. He may be a jerk. Yeah. He may be a dick. He may use God in manipulative ways, but he's not dumb. Oh, and, he, and and that's why he's such a thorn in Plainview's side for the rest of the movie. Yep. You know? Okay. I want to
0: ask this question. So w- one of the things we want to contemplate throughout this <laughs> conversation is how does Daniel feel about H.W.? That's a key. Does he love him? Does he not? That's a key thing that we want to track. Yeah. What, the other one I want to track is how religious is Eli? He could be completely an atheist and doesn't give a shit. It's all a fucking show. Right. Mm-hmm. Or he could have some religion and he's putting on a show. Or he could be, is he ever genuinely taken by the spirit? You know, is, is that ever real? Is it all performative?
4: I have you know? pretty strong opinions about this one. And really, <laughs> it really strikes me it's way more important to Eli about his position, his church, his what he gets, than it is about what perhaps a religious belief might be about accepting someone else or meeting in the middle. He's hell bent on getting what he wants. And so my answer about that is that the religion is absolute bullshit for him. Or maybe it's a nice sideshow that's convenient for him to get to where he wants to go. But it's not even about that anymore. It's like this ruse of you're not religious. You're not doing the right thing. You have to do this. When I don't really believe that. It's just his tool in order to get to the finish line. Mm-hmm. I believe that. And I don't know. What do you guys think?
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it's his tool to get to the finish line. I think that's what makes him more soulless than Daniel Plainview. Like Daniel Plainview is – trying to succeed as a businessman and he's creating this need or he's filling this need that people have for oil, right? This is something people can use in their lives to like their homes, to work their cars, whatever. At the time, what Eli is doing is using religion to prop up his ego, his need to be the top dog, his need to be adored, adulated his need to get his ass kissed, which is why all the terrible things happen to Eli after that separation in the movie happens later on. And when he returns to see Daniel, he's essentially a beggar to, to, to him because his ego and his hubris has gotten the better of him. Whereas Daniel uses his ego and his hubris to destroy his personal relationships, it still leads to success in business. It's, it's because his intention is to be successful in business. It is um, uh, Eli's intention to be successful For the adulation and celebrity and the fame. Couldn't agree more. That's that's soulless. I I think in a weird way, this
0: movie is about two people who are lying to themselves. I think Eli thinks on some level that he's religious. Sure. And I think deep down, he knows that's not true. Mm. You know, we all are rationalizing our bullshit to get the things that we want. And sometimes we face our rationalizations and sometimes we don't. Mm. And I think he will convince himself... At various times that this is for real. Mm -hmm. The moment I really love is he says this thing for my church. And Daniel looks at him and says, he says two sentences. First, he says, that's good. And then he says,
3: that's a good one.
0: I think that's a good one. I wonder if that line is. Only a bullshitter can spot a bullshitter. <laughs> yeah.
4: That's a good one. Like that's that's a good oh, that's an interesting uh story. I see the play you're
0: making. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I see the angle. Yeah. And they argue a little bit about the price, and finally we get to Well, no, I'll happily be a supporter of
3: your church for as long as I can. Now, as it happens, I do have some connections in the drilling business. <laughs> How do you feel about this, Abel?
0: And Dad says Yes,
3: what Eli says.
1: I wonder how long Eli has been running his family. And and I wonder if Eli is the reason Paul left. Not some you know I know in yeah. the book it's because mm-hmm. he's not religious but I think Paul sensed there was a real evil in Eli and he wanted to get the hell out of that house and knew that he ruled that house and so he knew the best options. Yeah. And maybe to to fuck Eli he told Daniel about that place to try to maybe mm kind of mess with Eli as a final F you to him. Cause God knows what Eli put him through growing up as a kid. Yeah. You know? yeah.
4: This makes sense. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> and
0: then I love Daniel goes to shake hands with Eli and Eli takes it with his opposite hand <laughs> and bows his head for a prayer moment. Ugh. And the look of discomfort on Daniel day Lewis's face.
4: Yeah.
0: That's just such a, ah, shit. Yeah. What have I gotten into here? Yeah. Kind of moment. The smirk.
4: And it also and sets then, up this first like move by, of Eli. Like, because this is part of your show. You're, it's yeah. a show for your parents. It's a show for Daniel. It's the show for us. And it's mm-hmm. so cringy, man. It is so cringy. But mm-hmm. it's like you can't look away. But yep. You really want to.
0: Plainview's off to the real estate office where he's basically going to buy all the land around here. Can
4: everything around here be gone?
0: Sure. And we see guys coming out of the train and... It's some other oil guys who are ready to drill there, and he basically says, you're too late. What'd you find?
3: I found some interesting prospects. Mm -hmm. You hear Standard bought up? Mostly in the north, so far. That's what I hear. I'm going to tell you, Gene, if you're going to make a play, look east.
0: And we have this weird moment because they're talking to the kid.
3: I'll be your lawyer if you need to draw up the contract. Make sure you don't get swindled, boy. Get half what your dad's making.
0: Do you think that this is actually this guy really doesn't think that Daniel's a trustworthy guy or is he making a joke?
1: Oh, no, I think he doesn't think he's a trustworthy guy at all. Yeah, Yeah. because he's not a trustworthy guy. All these guys know that they're all the same leopard with the same
4: spots. You and know what if I'm you saying? got in here before we got here, that right. means you are even more cutthroat. I don't even know how you did it, but something's mm. not adding up here. Right.
0: There's this interesting moment with H.W. with this girl who's we later learn is Mary. How much
3: money can you make? I
0: don't know. $1,000? It's like we're talking about way more money than $1,000 here. Yeah. In the next scene, we're in a tent. Firelight And HW says,
1: Mary said that her father beats her if she doesn't pray.
0: I think this movie does a good job of teasing you that maybe Daniel's going to be a good guy, Mm -hmm. you know, and the dad beating Mary is one of those points.
1: Well, I also think this is why this movie is so brilliant, right? Because Paul Thomas Anderson does look, I got I'm making a long movie. There's no way around it because I've got to get the audience to connect to this guy so much, so deeply to believe that this guy could possibly be a good guy and he's a man of business, so he's a powerful force to deal with. He could be a force for good, so that when the tra- the tragic incident happens to H.W., we are all the more decimated by what happens afterwards and what ends up becoming Daniel Plainview. It's the tragedy of it, you know? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you
0: so much for visiting with us this evening and now we're at a big meeting of the town and and by the way one of the things that paul thomas anderson said all these extras these are all marfa people which by the way in giant they were all marfa people (laughs) that was all the extras so these are like the kids of the people (laughs) who probably were in giant which is just crazy crazy. and what he said was he liked the marfa extras way better than the professional extras that he had in LA because what he said was all the people that are professional extras they all want to be actors and so they're really trying to get some face time they're trying to steal a little bit of focus whereas the the marfa people were just you know there is there anything worse
4: by the way than that phenomena like john i know you do some voice acting i don't know if you Mm. are involved in loop groups Or anything like that.
1: I have been, yes.
4: But the mark of a bad loop group supervisor or someone is like when you can hear these conversations, like in these Marvel movies or whatever, and there's a crowd outside, it's like there's a fucking giant beast on the thing, and you hear someone go, Oh, what is that? You know, just these these (laughs) things are like, Are you kidding me? Like these conversations that they generate for these loop groups are just bad, you know, for the most part. You just know. (laughs) Luke group yeah. loop group and so like i'm in it with you as well john it really takes like some authenticity and i think that's yeah. what paul's you know hammering on is like you get rid of this yearning to be heard mm-hmm. or to be seen or to stand out to be noted again it almost yeah. is like daniel's problem with eli
2: if
1: you ever oh, meet, that's yeah, a great point point. and if you ever meet my girlfriend she'll tell you One of the most irritating things I do is when I stop a show or a movie we're watching to point out an inauthentic extra and it drives her insane because that to me sticks out like a sore thumb. When you see an extra make an over exaggerated reaction to something so they can be seen on camera yeah. that takes attention away from the main actors that are having the scene or sneaks a look at the camera oh man uh, that kind of stuff is like when I did ex- I did extra work for like a year on wind talkers and what have you, and I was like I learned from people who did it for real yeah. and like those little things are the ones that make the difference between the ones who keep working all the time Absolutely. and the ones who are like you know rarely work because uh, of that stuff and it sticks out. And yeah. you're right. And there's an authenticity to that. People who don't want to aspire, you want the Paul Sundays, not the Eli Sundays. Exactly. And like, I used to do that Eli too, extras. where I would,
4: I would just call off. We'd be watching a movie. I'd go, yeah. shit, idiot. R. Shit, Eddie <laughs> yeah. R. Oh, yeah. And then to the point where my family's like, can you just stop? And I'm like, okay. So I don't <laughs> do it anymore. But now my kid does it. Now he will just be like, eh. it's like pointing out the yeah. Wilhelm scream. You know, the Wilhelm scream. And, oh, right. Wow. Wars, yeah. You know, that actually guy I work with, <laughs> Ben Burt, who's just a legend and was the sound designer for star wars like you're sure he threw that scream which is from oh man some movie from 1929 or something of some guy getting hit with an arrow and falling off of his horse he put that in some movie and then of course a bunch of people at skywalker sort of just let's throw it into this and then Mm -hmm. around 10 years ago maybe 12 years ago like everyone got the -hmm. same idea we're all going to do it and now it's in like Everything. It's in kids' cartoons. It's in no. you know. It's so. It's uh Wilhelm. Wilhelm. Ah! Loop group. Yeah. You can point out these things to death. Honestly, I would rather not notice any of this stuff because me too. Well, of course, my, my goal is to get lost in the movie. That's what I would like doing. Right.
0: Yeah, right. it's funny. The one that I I point out ADR to my wife's irritation, yeah. and the other one is is mm-hmm. actually what you described as Frankenstein edits, mm-hmm. where you can oh, hear oh, like yeah. the rhythm is just not quite right or doesn't quite mm-hmm. match when they're tying things together.
4: What is it called? Frankincense. Sentence.
0: Frank sentence. I love that. That's great. I have, to, I have to remember that. I love, by the way, anytime someone says, can I be honest with you? It's like, get ready for mm-hmm. a lie. Yeah. <laughs> and
3: he says, as an oil man, I hope that you'll forgive just good old fashioned plain speaking. Now, this work that we do is very much a family enterprise. Uh, I work side by side with my wonderful son, H.W. I think one or two of you might have met him. And
0: as we're hearing this, we have this just remarkable golden hour shot of the crew getting off of the train. The the way it's framed is amazing because they're moving away from the train. The engine of the train smokestack is going up in front of the golden glow of the rising sun. I mean, it's just stunning. And again, this is just PTA knows where to put the camera. He knows his film stock. He and his DP have worked together to set up this shot. And you and you just shoot it. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you have to time it right. You have to organize it right. They just nail it. And we see the tents getting put up.
3: And we hear this line of bull. Family means children. And children means education. So wherever we set up camp, education is a necessity. And we're just so happy to take care of that. So let's build a wonderful school in Little Boston. These children are the future that we strive for, and so they should have the very best of things.
0: How much of this is true? Oh. Does he build schools?
1: He's a politician. He's telling them exactly what they want to hear, and he's hitting those beats. Family, education, uh, and uh, infrastructure. Those are all the three things that every politician says, no matter what level they're at, from a house rep to a president to try to get votes. So he's essentially trying to get the votes of the town, the emotional yeah. votes of the town to be dedicated to him and what he's doing because he's going to need their help. I
4: think he proves to us later that he's probably full of shit. I mean, yeah. he <laughs> might have done this. Maybe, maybe he did build a school once or who knows. But we know, we're going to know pretty soon that once he has that vote, once he has that land, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's the only real important thing.
0: Well, and I think he rationalizes that, well, they got some jobs yeah, and they yeah. got some, you know, they got some stuff. Yeah. Like, so what if I didn't deliver? And then as as he goes through all this stuff, including, by the way, that they're going to have enough water to irrigate to get bread because bread. this town doesn't have bread. This
1: wonderful I love country the way he's, of ours.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love the way he says it. He says. Now, to my
3: mind, uh, it's an abomination to consider that to any man, woman or child in this magnificent country of ours should have to look upon a loaf of bread as a luxury. <laughs> Which I agree with. but I
0: don't think this community is going to get bread out of this. And and then he says, I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have. And who Mm -hmm. stands
1: up? But Eli.
3: Will the new road lead to the church? Well, that'll be the first place that it leads. Thank you, Eli. Anyone else?
1: He's so dismissive of him in that moment. Like He knows. He sees through Eli. He knows what Eli is, which is why Eli's standing up in front of everybody, making a huge gesture about the road leading to the church. It's so sanctimonious. And so that's why he's so dismissive and yeah. playfully exuberant uh, in a sarcastic way uh, towards Eli. I, I, you know, I relate
4: to it in a weird way, like, I, or maybe not relate. I love it so much because... Eli is full of shit on some level yeah. and he smells it and Daniel and he's worried about it and he's very concerned about what's actually going to happen. Everyone else has started to buy it and he's like, well, I'm going to pull this back to this question now. So you're saying it in front of all these people and they're all going to hear you. And Daniel's like, yes, I will say it in front of all these people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He knows once yeah. I own it, you can't do anything about it. And Eli knows that too. And it's like, it's not going to help all these little jabs. And it's just making it worse. It's a competition
0: now. It's funny you say competition. I literally was going to bring up that line that he says later that where Daniel says, I have a competition in me. Oh. Because the mm-hmm. thing that just occurred to me is they would all have been better off if Eli and Daniel had just said, OK, you're full of shit. I'm full of shit. If we work together and use both our bullshit in tandem, mm-hmm. we're going to get everything oh, we want. Oh,
4: man, for sure. Right.
0: They just had to team up.
4: But that speech you mentioned, though. That is mm-hmm. the speech of the movie. I mean, that for me is mm-hmm. this horrifying thing to say. And it takes a lot of self-knowledge to say that it's not just enough for me to succeed. I don't want anyone mm-hmm. else to succeed. If they succeed, I can't succeed. It's yeah. really just heinous.
1: Well, And he doesn't see him as an equal. No, so no, why no, would he team not. up with him? Because no. he knows that Eli is trying to use him. Yeah. And you know, and all of us know those people yeah. who try to get famous by writing other people's coattails, by not doing the work themselves. Yeah. Um, and it comes in numerous forms. You know, help me. You're my friend. You, you know, why won't you help me get this job? Or you're my family member. Why won't you hire me to be this high ranking position in your in your company? Uh, because we're blood. What? Like you know, or or other people say, well, I'm uh, I'm the girlfriend or, or husband or, or boyfriend or wife. Of this famous person, therefore, I have cachet to speak, and so you just never earn your shit. Right. And I think he senses from Eli that this is a guy who is just going to use him for and do as little work as possible in exchange for trying to get as much from him as possible. Whereas Daniel is a worker. Daniel oh. is a worker. You know, I, I totally.
0: I totally agree with that, but I also think that from Eli's perspective, as flawed and delusional as it is, he looks at Daniel and goes, you are a full of shit person who's only interested in money, and you're going to totally use this town to get what you want. You're totally lying, mm-hmm. and I am a man of God. Well, that's why I mean, yeah, that's how I' small am- –
4: that's yeah. what
1: small-minded people think. They think they're at that level just by thinking. They're they both it
4: believing their own bullshit on some true. different level, like different Very amounts true. of their own bullshit. But the problem is that Daniel knows. He knows mm-hmm. he's an alpha predator here. He just knows that yeah. in his heart. Yeah. And Eli, God bless him. You know, like He's trying to do his thing, <laughs> but he's sort of just like airboxing. And Daniel just knows, I'll deal with you however you want me to deal with you, but it's going to have the same end result. And I love the just building of the absolute hatred between these guys.
0: And we're going to get to one of those key moments of that because we're building the Derek and HW is kind of doing some stuff. And Daniel's in that office mess hall building. And we hear the sounds of work, but then we also start to hear singing Hmm. in the distance and the cameras sort of move towards the derrick. And what we see is this processional of Eli and some of his congregation. And Eli and his people go up to the workers. Oh, God. And it's so interesting. Like, one just blows right past them.
3: Hello, brother. My name is Eli.
0: I don't want any part of this. But this other guy waits. And they, they put a paper mm-hmm. cross on him. And Daniel D. Lewis is watching this. Mm-hmm. And the music again is very dissonant and people are praying. And then we go into this high angle and we see Eli walking towards Daniel. Hmm. And every time they come together, there is a, you know what I mean? Whether it's, yeah, yeah, every time they're coming together, like, oh shit, something's going to happen. And what we hear is that they're going to have like a little gathering when we're going to start the well. And Eli says, he doesn't ask. He says,
3: I will bless the well.
0: And he describes, like, gives the stage directions. <laughs> this is how it's going to go.
3: Before you begin, you should introduce me. You'll see me walk up towards the oil well, and when I'm Derek, you'll see me walk up, and then you could say my name.
0: He says, "Then you can say my name. <laughs> like, then you will have permission yeah. to say my name." And Plainviews just plays along.
3: When you walk up, yes, you'll see me walk up, and then you could say.
0: And then he gives him the dialogue. This is the script.
3: The proud son of these hills who tended his father's flock. And then you could say my name.
0: And Daniel says. That's fine. Okay. When you watch this the first time, are you going, oh, I guess he's going to let him do the prayer? Is that what you're thinking? No. Or are you already thinking he's messing with him?
1: Yes. I mean, for me personally, having had experiences with people like this before, yes, he's messing with him. And that's what you do with people like this, that you mess with them, you poke at them, you placate them in, in, in sarcastic ways because they're very much about themselves. And so I immediately understood this scene and what was he what he was doing. Uh, I didn't know how far he would go in not granting his wishes, but I knew he'd find a way to, like, mess him up in some way, maybe start doing the well just as, you know, as he's introducing him so you can't be heard but I knew he was going to mess with him. One thing I want to point out real quick is when Eli starts to walk towards the thing uh, from the above shot, all of a sudden there's a darkness or a shadow that comes Mm. across the
4: ground. Mm.
1: So brilliant. It's subtle, but it's fucking brilliant.
4: I want to say to answer your question about, you know, Mm. what do we know? Do we know if he's going to build, you know, he's going to let him christen the well or whatever, do the prayer. One thing about me that I'm actually thankful for is that I'm a dumbass movie viewer. Like I, I have this suspension of disbelief as you wouldn't believe. I tend to believe what I'm given at least at first, mm-hmm. you know, my wife will just be like that guy's the villain or whatever it is. And she's always <laughs> right. But I like, I like being taken for these rides. So to answer your question, I think I thought he was going to let him do it. I, I don't know. That was a long time ago, but I think I was, still wasn't sure. I don't know yet, but, uh, it's a really good question.
0: I'm pretty sure I did think he was going to let him do it. And um, I love, by the way, the bo- moment where Daniel asks, uh, what time? And he <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. says, what time is good for you, Eli?
3: <laughs> four o'clock. Well, let's make it four o'clock then.
0: The reason I thought he was, uh, that I thought he was going to do it, and spoiler alert, I think he should have let him do it, is that this is a powerful guy in the town. Right. Why piss off the town? I, There's no, literally no reason to screw this guy at this moment. So everyone is gathered. Daniel comes down the stairs. Mary, the little blonde girl, is there with HW, and Eli is there right in the center of the crowd, kind of almost glowing in anticipation of the moment he is about
1: to have. And real quick, he takes Mary from in front of Eli. Mm.
0: That's a, that's
1: an interesting moment too. He's taking, cause look, she's, you know, just like we saw recently with Gabby, Partito, whatever her name was, that young lady who was unfortunately killed. Like she's blonde hair, blue eyed and white. She symbolizes something for people. Girls go missing all the time, awesome. but her story People gravitated to it. There's something about the look. We've seen this for numerous decades in this country. Sadly. Eli has this blonde hair, beautiful young girl with the white dress in front of him as a symbol of purity and innocence. And here is Daniel taking her from him and putting her by his side. This is just an interesting yeah. moment of power between the two.
0: Absolutely. And her name's Mary. Yeah, yeah Mary. I mean, right. Exactly.
3: Oh, I'm better at digging holes in the ground and making speeches. So let's forget the speech for this evening. Just make it a simple blessing. Now, he
0: said blessing. And there's this moment like, wait, what's what's happening here? Is this? Oh, this maybe this is his intro because he said we're going to have a blessing. You see, one man doesn't prospect from the ground.
3: It takes a whole community of good people such as yourselves. And uh, this is good. We stay together. Pray together. We work together. And if the good Lord smiles kindly on our endeavor, we share in the wealth together. So
0: not only is he not going to let Eli do the thing that Eli wants to do. Yeah. But he's taken the position, essentially, of the godly man Yeah, in this moment. He is talking to the Lord. He is giving the blessing.
4: And he's lying. And he's lying yeah, to them because lying. he's saying yeah. one man can't do that. That's exactly what he did alone. He knows mm. one man can do it, but only he can do Good it. Good point. Only he can do it. Now, before we spud in Mary's well, number one, name for the lovely Miss Mary Sunday
3: here by my side.
0: He's actually named the well for Mary, Mm -hmm. which is a very interesting move. And he describes her as a proud daughter of these hills, (laughs) which are the exact (laughs) words that Eli wanted him to introduce him with.
3: (laughs) Right. And Eli's still standing there, still waiting. I just like to say God bless these honest labors of ours. and Of course, God bless you all. Amen.
0: He has said the prayer. It's over. And H.W. runs up the steps, and he's up there on the well with Fletcher, and he pulls the lever, and the well starts, and we watch Eli and the realization of what has just happened.
3: That's it, ladies and gentlemen.
0: By the way, did Eli tell his entire congregation that he was going to deliver the blessing of the well? I think 100%. Me too. Just Absolutely. by the reaction. Yeah. And I think this is a tremendously humiliating moment for
1: him.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And there's applause. And Daniel kisses Mary and announces we have refreshments. And there's music. And everyone helped themselves. And the party is starting. And the, the non-parishioners just start, go away over to the tables where there's stuff. Hmm. And then Eli turns and slowly walks away.
1: Hmm.
0: And even the way he walks is yes. odd. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then I love how the parishioners, they just sort of disperse. Mm -hmm. And at this moment where Daniel has clearly slighted Eli, the leader of the church in this community, I think it's a good time to end part one of our exploration of There Will Be Blood. As always, we'd love to hear what you think of this incredible movie, so visit us on our Facebook page. You can subscribe to the show at all the usual places at Apple Podcasts, where we'd love to get your reviews. You can also listen on Spotify or Stitcher. You can listen to the show on YouTube, where we love to read your comments and interact with you there. You can follow the show on Twitter at Cine underscore Files, on Instagram at Podcast. You can follow me at SR Morris and Twitter, SR Morris One on Instagram. John, where can people find you?
1: Always find me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you want to head over to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Um yeah. Oh, and on Twitch now, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch. There you go. Um, And you can also, if you want to buy There Will Be Blood or any
0: other movie we've ever reviewed, you can do it on cinephiles.net. If you want to pick a film for us or ask questions, as we've had some of our patrons do, the best place to go is patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And... We want to thank so much our incredible guest, John Grieber. This Hell has yeah. been you, dude, you fit right into the cinephile. I got to say, I feel
4: like we've been hanging out for 20 years, just talking shit about movies. So I, honestly, I, I had a great time. I cannot wait till part two, because, uh, you know, I think we all have a lot more to say about it. It's just getting going. Hell
0: yeah! And it, people want to reach you on social media or that kind of thing, or, I, you know, I haven't even mentioned the candy gurus. No, like- uh, is there anything you want to plug here? Well, you know,
4: I kind of tried to get off all the social media except for Instagram, which I'm. Was- slowly winning off but if you want to my handle there is splits around one word which tells you how old i am it's like indicative of like oh my god you could have like a bullet go on your left and it isn't on your right i think i forget when that started i (laughs) want to say it was apocalypse now i'm not really sure what the first 5.1 movie was maybe it was jurassic park i'm i'm losing it here but yeah i'm splits around i'm on instagram and i'm you know i'm just happy to be here so i think it's all about you guys
0: well it's been great having you and i think Uh, That is it for this week, and we will see you next time on The Cinephiles to continue our exploration of Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood.